let me begin with the first slide. The basic point of my lecture this morning is, the, is that the shape of Jesus' life, as presented in the prologue of John's Gospel, stands in a figural relationship to that of the life of Israel's God in the Old Testament. This can be illustrated graphically, of course, by my first slide, in which uh, the red uh, figure goes from Genesis 1 to Exodus 40, and uh, the blue arc is from John 1, 1, and the beginning was the Word, John 1, 14, uh, and the Word became flesh and then tented or tabernacled among us, uh, especially the relationship of Exodus 40 to John 1, uh, is nicely explained by Raymond Brown in his classic commentary on the Gospel of John, where he writes, uh, John 14b, 114b shows us that um, if the Word became become flesh, he has not ceased to be God. In 14b, this is given expression in the Greek verb skenun, to pitch a tent. The theme of tenting is found in Exodus 25, 8-9, where Israel is told to make a tent, that is, the tabernacle, skene in Greek, uh, mishkan in Hebrew, so that God can dwell among his people. The tabernacle became the site of God's localized presence on earth. But not only that, the divine presence in Jesus overflows in verse 14c. We have seen his glory. Uh, in the Old Testament, the kavod Adonai, the glory of God, or doxa, implies a visible and powerful manifestation of God to men. However, what we are primarily interested in is in the uh, constant connection of the glory of God with his presence in the tabernacle and the temple. But where Brown's analysis, I think, falls short is its restricted focus on the sources of John 1.14. My intent today requires a larger horizon. To begin with, let's focus on the fact that John 1.14 to John 1.1 is figurally related, as this slide shows, to the relationship of Genesis 1 to Exodus 40. Traditional Jewish exegesis has long acknowledged this linkage. Ibn Ezra, for example, the great medieval Spanish scholar, famously noted that creation did not come to completion until the tabernacle was erected, an idea I think that St. John could have assented to. There are a lot of exegetical means to establish this linkage within the Old Testament. And let me give you just one example. Both Genesis 1, if you look at handout uh, number 1, and Exodus 40, are structured by sequences of seven. And this recalls Mesopotamian lexical lists, which equate the number seven with the Akkadian word kishatu, meaning completeness or perfection. Genesis 1 has a famously sevenfold usage of the formula of approbation, which I have in bold and underlined. God saw that what he had just created was good. If you look at handout, page number two, you'll see that Exodus 40 is structured similarly, especially the second half of that, chap of that chapter, what I call the execution of the commands that Moses receives. 
there as well, and I have them numbered for you. The text makes clear that Moses did ka'asher Adonai tzivaoto, just as the Lord had commanded him. Seven times this is mentioned. So Moses seven times receives this approbatory formula for what he has done, matching God's own approval of what he's done in chapter one of the book of Genesis. But the affection for the number seven in these two chapters goes far deeper than this. If we look at Genesis 1-1 again on the first handout, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha'aretz, the very first clause of the creation story, uh, the three key words there, German life water, God, heaven, and earth, all occur in this chapter in numbers divisible by seven. I simply boxed God to illustrate one of these. It occurs 35 times, but I left one out, uh, the God in, uh, at the close of verse two. So you should, if you have a pen, you might want to box that in uh, so that you get the 35. But I could have done the same thing for heaven and earth. I uh, didn't do that because I didn't want the handout to be too overwhelming or messy. Uh, but the point is the importance of uh, seven as a structuring device. And if we turn to handout page two for Exodus 40, uh, here's something that the great German biblical scholar Beno Jacob noted long ago. Uh, the number of active transitive verbs designating the specific actions that Moses undertakes to complete the tabernacle uh, in the second half of that chapter, uh, number 28, and I have boxed them, that is four by seven, uh, divisible into um, un four units of seven, actually. And if we look over on the left-hand uh, side of the page, the commands that Moses receives, again, 28 active transitive verbs divisible into unit, two units of 14. Uh, the number seven then, both for building the tabernacle and for creating the world, is a fundamental structuring principle for both of these chapters. Having established this symmetry between Genesis 1 and Exodus 40, I'd like to go a little bit deeper. In traditional Jewish exegesis, Exodus 40 is linked to Leviticus 8 and 9. This is visible on the slide I've just presented on the screen, uh, where both of these chapters end with theophanies where the glory of the Lord, the Kavod Adonai, becomes visible. Most readers looking at these chapters would presume that these theophanies are sequential. That is, after the tabernacle is erected in Exodus 40, the glory then makes its first appearance. And then when the priests are consecrated in Leviticus 8, the glory appears for a second time at the close of Leviticus 9. But the collapsing of these two theophanies into a single historical event is not simply the result of later rabbinic midrashic creativity. One can see a hint of this exegetical move already in 2 Chronicles 7. If you take a look at this slide here, you'll note that uh, both by marking the font differently and coloring them differently, you can see uh, that the conclusion of the uh, building and consecrating the temple under King Solomon is uh, recounted in the book of Chronicles using the vocabulary of those two theophanies 
uh, and collapsing them into a single event. So 2 Chronicles 7 is our earliest uh, historical evidence for a move that would become standard in rabbinic and medieval uh, Jewish commentaries. The question then would be, what grounds this peculiar exegetical move? Very few modern commentators notice this, won't go into the reasons for that. Uh, some do, but very few do, but it becomes standard, certainly in Jewish traditional commentaries. What, what grounds it? Well, I would want to suggest that there are two factors. First, there's a deep structural similarity between Exodus 40, the execution of the tabernacle, and Leviticus 8 and 9, the story of the consecration of the priests. Both texts describe the successful execution of a set of commands that are divided into seven units. So let's look at the handout on pages 5 and 6 for how this works in the story of the uh, consecration of the priesthood. This is a somewhat long chapter, so it extends over two pages on the handout. But what's key to notice here is, again, this appearance of this formula of approbation that I've already mentioned that Moses did, just as the Lord had commanded him. And again, I've numbered them on this handout so you can see clearly uh, that it happens seven times, just as what, what we saw, just like what we saw in Exodus 40. Um, so we could put this in the form uh, I have here on this slide as an analogy uh, the Exodus 40 verses 1 to 16 which give us the commands for how the tabernacle should be executed uh, stands in relationship to Exodus 40 verses 17 to 33 the execution of those commands to the way in which Exodus 29 the commands for ordaining the priesthood stands in relationship to Leviticus 8, the execution of those commands. In each instance, the execution of the commands is divided into seven uh, actions, uh, all marked by an approbatory formula of completion. But I have a little footnote here on my slide uh, using the words grosso modo, and this is not by accident, because actually the picture is a little bit more complex than my slide would indicate. If we look back at your handout, hope you can see now why the handout's important, uh, to Exodus 40, not all of the commands, that's handout page two, not all of the commands found in verses 1 to 16 are completed in verses 17 to 33. In other words, the handout is a little bit misleading. If we look at the second half of the commands, and I've put them all in italics, verses 9 through 15, we'll notice that those commands are not completed until we get to the consecration of the priests in Leviticus 8. In other words, Exodus 40 interlocks with both the completion of the commands for building the tabernacle and the completion of the commands for ordaining the priesthood. 
And it's for this reason, I think, that early interpreters understood then that these theophanies must be collapsible uh, into a single historical event. Um, one last piece to our puzzle. Why has the biblical writer articulated the telos, the climax, the apogee, or the denouement of creation in this peculiar fashion? Why has he chosen to confuse the historical and narrative chronologies? Well, let me suggest one explanation. I think our writer here's interest is to emphasize that we have before us two thematically related, but still independently construed theological themes. First, that of indwelling, what we see in Exodus 40, the indwelling of Israel's God in a building. And secondly, in Leviticus 8 and 9, the introduction of the sacrificial service that will take place at that building. Depending on the rhetorical needs of a given writer, one of these themes can be treated independently of the other, even if they both ultimately belong together. And so, I reorganize or redefine my slide here. It's not John 1.1 to John 1.14 and Genesis 1 to Exodus 40, but rather Exodus 40 and Leviticus 9 have to be coordinated with Genesis 1. And Christological implications of that will return to at the end of my paper. Perhaps the best place to see the significance of the indwelling dimension, that is Exodus 40, uh, is in the rules that govern the dismantling of the tabernacle. And here you need to look at page 7 uh, on your handout. In this chapter, this chapter is really, in many respects, the reverse of Exodus 40. Exodus 40 is how to assemble, pitch the tent, as it were, and Numbers 4 is how to disassemble, to take the tent apart. In this chapter, the three Levitical families, Kohath, Gershom, and Merari, are assigned the task of taking down the tabernacle to prepare it for its journey. What is striking is how different the process followed by the Kohathites, the most important of the three Levitical families, is from the other two families. In the case of the other two families, that is Gershon and Morari, the charge, their charge is the porterage of the fabrics of the, temp, of the tabernacle and the supporting pillars and bars. Each text describes the work, the avodah, or service, that each clan must undertake. So we see this word used, for example, in verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Koah. Or verse 24. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites. But whereas for Gershon, we move immediately from this is the service to a description of that service, in verses 25 and 26. When we turn to Kohath at the beginning of this chapter, verse 4, this is the service, doesn't introduce, somewhat surprisingly, what Kohath is going to actually do. That won't come for, you know, about 12 or 15 more verses. Rather, what we have 
is a long interpolation about the responsibilities of Aaron and his sons. Uh, and I've indented that there. So how do we explain this difference? Well, the items that the Kohathites must handle are so imbued with the presence of God that they pose a mortal danger to those who are not anointed with holy oils. Not only is physical contact death-dealing, let's take a look at verse 15 on the handout, uh, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, and only after that, the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So touching is death-dealing, but not only that, even seeing these pieces of furniture will pose a mortal danger for, for the Kohathites. And this becomes clear in verses 17 and following, where the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, let not the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be destroyed, but deal with them thus that they might not, that they may live. Verse 20, they shall not go in to look upon the holy things even for a moment lest they die. This fear that even the sight of the furniture would be death-dealing recalls other texts in the Old Testament that depict the danger of seeing God. Though the tabernacle did not contain a statue of Israel's God, as did other sanctuaries in the ancient Near East, it didn't mean that God's tangible presence was unrelated to the physical artifacts of the temple. Indeed, God's presence, even if aniconic, was so real and so palpable that all the sacred items in its near vicinity absorbed something of its holiness. Just skip ahead to uh, this slide to illustrate this. If we look at a picture of the tabernacle, important to realize that God, of course, dwells within the Holy of Holies, and to quote Flannery O'Connor's famous remark about the Eucharist, it's not simply a symbolic presence, but according to uh, the priestly writer of Leviticus and Exodus, God really dwells there. Uh, I like to think of the tabernacle, perhaps, along the lines of being a nuclear reactor, uh, where at the inner core we have the uranium rods whose uh, radiation pulsates, and if it's not blocked by thick cement walls, will uh, infect with everything around it something of its radioactivity. The same thing very much operates in ancient Near Eastern temples. If we were to look at temples in uh, Mesopotamia, for example, it's not simply the statue of the god uh, that's divinized in the middle of the temple, but all of the furniture also can be marked with the dinger sign, uh, meaning that it also has been quasi-divinized. Uh, there's no dinger sign, obviously, in biblical Hebrew, but I think what we see in Numbers 4 is the priestly writer's analog to that. Uh, it's as though all of these items have been divinized because they share the same kind of danger uh, that uh, the God of Israel uh, uh, contains. So just as seeing God in the Old Testament is death-dealing, so seeing the furniture is death-dealing. And having said that, I'm going to go back and explain these two slides. 
Uh, I mentioned that there's a kind of thematic independence to the indwelling theme and the sacrifice theme, and I think this is nicely illustrated uh, in post-biblical Jewish art. Both of these images are associated with Israel's hopes for a rebuilt temple. Here, uh, a coin from the Bar Kokhba revolt, which shows uh, in the middle of the pillars of the temple there on the right, uh, the table of presents. And as our historians have noticed, uh, this coin is clearly imaged on or built on the image of uh, Hellenistic coins in which the god who inhabits the local sanctuary, the statue of that god is brought to the front of the temple either to illustrate an epiphany of that god at a religious festival or to designate the god's domain uh, within that temple and within that city. Uh, it's striking that in the Jewish coin uh, that this piece of furniture, the table of presence, stands in place of the god. Some scholars have argued uh, that what we see in this Jewish coin is the earliest evidence of a Talmudic notion that pilgrims could fulfill the obligation of seeing God during the three pilgrimage festivals by looking at the furniture which was brought out of the temple and paraded before the pilgrims, according to the Jerusalem Talmud. There's a big dispute about rabbinic scholars as to whether this is the imagination of the rabbis or reflecting a real historical right. I side most likely with those scholars who believe this is the rabbinic imagination. But for our purposes, it's not important. Where, why would the rabbis imagine that? Uh, they imagine that because I think they are um, reflecting very uh, astutely uh, the high theology of the furniture uh, of the temple. And this coin nicely illustrates the hopes for rebuilding the temple along the lines of what I've called the indwelling theme, that the tabernacle is where God dwells and everything inside that temple then assumes something of the significance uh, of the deity who dwells there. Uh, the other way to portray the significance of the temple is more the Leviticus 8 and 9 model here from the synagogue at Sepphoris, uh, where uh, in uh, panel 3 here, we have a depiction of the ordination of Aaron and Aaron's offering of the Tamid sacrifice uh, the requirements of which are found in Leviticus 1. But here the hopes for rebuilding the temple are clearly sacrificial. Uh, the building element takes second stage uh, to uh, the, uh, the events of Leviticus uh, 8 uh, and 9. Okay. Having gone over the tabernacle, in its um, Old Testament um, inflection, let's go forward beyond John to the figure of uh, Saint Athanasius. Because the linkage here of God's person with the building that he inhabits made a deep impression on early Christian readers of the Bible. So I'd like to examine the way uh, Athanasius interprets John 1.14 uh, in his letter to Adelphius. And here we want to look at handout uh, 9 and 10. And uh, one of the things I mentioned, just as a note to the reader on the upper left-hand corner there, is that the key features to note in this text 
Our hymn, The Life Force, are the leading words, word, flesh, and worship, all drawn from John 1.14. This whole document is really an extended commentary uh, on John 1.14. In the body of this letter, Athanasius argues that worshiping Christ, the God-man, is not only orthodox, but clearly grounded in Scripture. In order to accomplish this, he centers his argument on John's assertion that the Word became flesh. The words of this verse return over and over again as he makes his way through the letter. As will become clear in his lengthiest scriptural argument, he understands that this phrase is grounded in the tabernacling of the God of Israel in the tabernacle or temple. For this reason, the fact that the word became flesh can never be separated from our obligation to worship it, something that's not part and parcel of John 1.14, but for Athanasius, the attachment of the Greek word koiskanuo to John 1.14 follows naturally. The word Athanasius declares became flesh in such a fashion that when one worships Christ, no separation could be made between the word and the flesh that housed it. As Khaled Anatolios has noted, this temple Christology presumes, quote, a single subject of salvific agency and a single object of worship. As such, Khaled goes on to say, it anticipates the thinking of his successor, Cyril of Alexandria, end of quote. Uh, the example of the leper is telling on this score, that is, if you take a look at the handout of Athanasius, the beginning of the second paragraph there on the left, uh, which reads, the leper, however, was not such as these. Uh, he worshipped the God who was in the body and recognized that he was God, saying, Lord, if you wish, you can make me clean. He didn't consider the word of God to be a creature on account of the flesh, nor did he disparage the flesh because of the word who wore it was the maker of all creation. Rather, he worshipped, here's the key sentence, the creator of all being, of all, as being in a created temple. And so he was cleansed. And very nice illustration there of Athanasius understanding the fundamental significance of John 1.14, pointing back to that arc I suggested from Genesis 1 to Exodus 40 slash Leviticus 9. Um, of course, John 1.14, as I've mentioned, makes no explicit reference to an act of worship, but Athanasius correctly infers its presence by the fact that the words becoming flesh is in the manner of a god inhabiting a temple. The image of the temple returns at the end of this document in the longest continuous piece of exegesis Turn the page to number uh, seven. It's on page 10 of your handout on the right-hand column. This section, I think, is worth quoting uh, in full. Moreover, we would like your reverence to pose to them the following question. When Israel was commanded to go up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple of the Lord, where there was the ark, and above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Was this a good deed or a bad one? If they were doing a bad deed, that is, bowing their knee before stones, why is it that those who did not heed this law were consigned to punishment? It's very important to see 
Holy Spirit used this model from the Old Testament to flesh out, no pun intended, what John 1.14 is all about. This isn't just uh, uh, textual filigree for Athanasius. Uh, Exodus 40 is doing heavy lifting in this text. For it is written that the one who disregards it and does not go up is to be cut off from among the people. This is an important uh, mitzvah, commandment, to prostrate oneself before the temple. But if the Israelites were doing a good deed, uh, through which, in fact, they were pleasing to God, must not these defiled Aryans, whose heresy is the most shameful of all, be utterly deserving of destruction? For in that case, they commend the ancient people for the honor they rendered to the temple, but they don't wish to worship the Lord who is in his flesh as in a temple. There you see his main point. And yet the old temple was fashioned from rocks and gold and was merely a shadow. But when the reality arrived, the image was henceforth annulled according to the words of the Lord, and there did not remain a stone upon another stone that was not thrown down. Although the Israelites saw that the temple was made of stones, they did not think that the Lord speaking in the temple was a creature, nor did they scorn the temple and go far off from it to worship. But in accordance with the law, they went to the temple and served the Lord who revealed himself from the temple. It was ir the, the, the temple is irreplaceable uh, as the site for venerating Israel's God, even though the temple isn't identified as wholly uh, identical to Israel's God. This being so, how can one not worship the all-holy and all-sacred body of the Lord, which was announced by the angel Gabriel and fashioned by the Holy Spirit and became a garment for the Word? Therefore, the one who dishonors the temple dishonors the Lord who is in the temple, and the one who separates the Word from the body rejects the grace that was granted to us in the Word. I mentioned just as uh, a footnote here, um, the Eastern Church which is designed in accordance with the instructions for building the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, becomes in the Byzantine period a site for exploring the miracle of the incarnation. The, not only to exegete the text of 40, but Byzantine writers are happy to exegete the actual structure of uh, the Christian church, the iconostasis being a kind of broken or veil uh, that marks off uh, the sensible from the, un, uh, the uh, intelligible. And uh, the usage of Exodus 40 uh, as a site for doing Christology among the Byzantines is really quite extraordinary and uh, grossly overlooked and ignored, I think, by uh, scholars who work uh, on these biblical texts. It's clear that Athanasius has recognized that the logical home of the Johannine phrase, the word became flesh, is that of the temple. Accordingly, he almost reflexively attaches uh, to the concept of worship whenever he cites or alludes to this verse. As we saw earlier in the laws that govern the way in which the Kohathites are to handle the in inner sancta, there's no real separation between those objects and the person of God. For Athanasius, these texts provide a potent analogy to the Incarnation. He observes the importance of going to Jerusalem to worship God and associates the command that the furniture that was located in the inner recesses. Um, the way that Athanasius employs the Old Testament shouldn't be overlooked. J 
John 1.14, in his view, for all of its power, was not sufficient on its own to establish an orthodox Christology. In order to thwart the claims of the Arian party, the theology of John 1.14 had to be fleshed out in light of its roots in the Old Testament. But even the Arians, yes, even the Arians commended the Israelites for the reverence they offered in the temple. Athanasius could extend this point of agreement to an exegesis of John 1.14. It may be useful to consider how a proper grasp of the Christological dimensions of the temple metaphor is related to Christ's saving work. Oftentimes in modern theology, a distinction is made between the role of the incarnation and the sacrificial dimension of the cross. Athanasius and the Eastern tradition are often singled out as theological voices which put more emphasis on the notion of deification that takes place through the Incarnation. Clearly here, St. Athanasius' construal of an atoning sacrifice is an offending element for scholars who go, or theologians who go this direction. In his letter to Adelphius, Athanasius provides a classic proof text for just such an assertion, where he writes in paragraph four, Christ became a human being that we might be divinized in him. He came to be in a woman and was begotten of a virgin in order to transport our errant race into himself and in order that uh, from then on we may become a holy race and partakers of the divine nature. For Andrew Lau, contemporary Eastern Orthodox theologian, texts like this indicate that deification is a theological concept that at least conceptually should be evaluated independently from that of sacrificial redemption. And here, if we want to look at the handout, I have just a brief excerpt from Love, I believe, on uh, page 8. My handout's kind of a mess, but I think that's, that's where it is. Yes, that's where it is, page 8. He happily concedes that Christ came to save us, and in our response, in our response to his saving action and word, we are redeemed. But deification, he contends, and here I quote, belongs to a broader conception of the divine economy. Deification is the fulfillment of creation, not just the rectification of the fall. One way of putting this, again quoting Lau, is to think in terms of an arch, recall uh, my PowerPoint slide from the beginning, this is my final one, actually I'm correcting Lau from this slide, but let's not be too hasty. Um, one way of putting this is to think in terms of an arch stretching from creation to deification, like Genesis 1 to Exodus 40, or John 1, 1 to John 1, 14, representing what is and remains God's intention the creation of the cosmos that, through humankind, is destined to share in the divine life, to be deified. Some may know this question. It was posed among the medievals. Would the incarnation have taken place if Adam had not fallen? Clearly, Lauf would want to affirm yes, uh, and that the primary arch, we might want to say, of the divine economy of salvation doesn't include uh, that of the sacrificial death. The sacrificial death was necessitated by Adam's fall, 
But for Laos, the primary arch is that of uh, creation to incarnation. Now, our consideration of the canonical shape of the tabernacle narrative allows us to confirm some parts of his claim, but also seeks to correct others. As I've noted, the indwelling of the tabernacle is the denouement of creation. The medieval Jewish commentator Ibn Ezra said that the created order remained unfinished until the tabernacle was erected. That's because the Ark of Creation in the Jewish scriptures goes from creation to Sinai. God fashioned the world in order to establish intimacy with human beings. This Ark, which is paradigmatic for the Old Testament, has an obvious influence on the prologue of John. For in this text, the tabernacling of the Word in the flesh is traced back to the moment of creation itself, John 1, 14 to John 1, 1. Confirming in part Lauth's claim that deification is, in some senses, the fulfillment of Scripture. But, as we saw in the Old Testament, the themes of indwelling, Exodus 40, and sacrifice, Leviticus 9, though separable at one level, cannot be finally pulled apart in the way in which Lauth prefers to do. The temporal correlation of the appearance of the glory of the Lord within the tabernacle, Exodus 40, is correlated necessarily with the consumption of the first sacrifices uh, in the final form of the Pentateuchal text, that is, Leviticus 9. God's desire then to dwell among the Israelites includes necessarily both dimensions, indwelling and sacrificial service. And this point, as Christopher Seitz has repeatedly argued, has weighty theological implications. If the incarnation of God and Jesus Christ was, as Seitz would like to say, in accordance with the scriptures, uh, then this fundamental Old Testament paradigm, that is, of creation pointing to both indwelling and sacrifice, must bear some weight in shaping the way we think of the person of Christ. I had time for another lecture, which I don't feel well enough to deliver right now, and I'm sure you don't have uh, the sitzfleischer to endure, uh, we would want to note, for example, in the Gospel of John, that the doxa, the glory, is not simply used to mark the indwelling of Christ uh, in the flesh in chapter 1, but is tied to the way in which his being will be manifest in his passion. Uh, a point that Richard Balcom has recently made nicely uh, with respect to the way in which the word doxa functions in that gospel, and that's why in this final slide here, I've appended not just John 1.14, but John 17, to give us the full picture of John's presentation of Christ, which gives us both our indwelling notion and Christ's sacrificial self-offering, which is, of course, nicely uh, correlated with uh, the Old Testament notion of uh, Exodus 40 and Leviticus 9. Now, lest we make the move that to say that the Old Testament picture still in some senses fails over against its New Testament model, because as the Epistle of Hebrews, of course, likes to remark, uh, the Exodus-Leviticus uh, model presumes the endless sacrifices of bulls, where we have the one-time sacrifice of Christ in the Gospels, 
I'd like to suggest that Hebrews is actually already anticipated uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, something that, you know, again, traditional Judaism has noticed, but even modern biblical scholars as well, because Genesis 22, the story of the binding of Isaac uh, in its uh, canonical form is understood as the foundational sacrifice of all temple sacrifice. That's why it occurs at Mount Moriah, or the Mount of the Lord, as it's later called in that chapter. And my last slide uh, is from an illuminated medieval Jewish manuscript of uh, Vayikra chapter 1, that is the beginning of the sacrificial laws in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Jewish reading of this chapter understood these sacrifices in the first chapter as being relevant to the Tamid sacrifice, the morning and evening sacrifice, and understood those sacrifices as to be grounded in the binding of Isaac, which this nice illumination shows us. In fact, one of the most remarkable texts, it's a medieval text, it's late, but I think captures the sense of the canonical Hebrew text, uh, reads that anyone who reads Leviticus chapter 1, Jew, Gentile, free or non-free, just think about that for a second, uh, they will... Uh, accrue the zechut, the merits of Isaac's sacrifice. So that just reading the Levitical laws for the Tamid sacrifice at the close uh, of, the, uh, of the temple period uh, was sufficient to be a beneficiary of the merits of that primal, non-repeatable sacrifice. And so that's why this slide ends the way it does and I think brings to uh, fuller burnish the way in which within the Old Testament is taking its per se voice, its inner Jewish voice, we can see an uh, extraordinary analogy uh, to the Christological mystery as it would be articulated in the New. I don't think that John had this in mind. That's not my point. It's very much a Reverend Child's point. That this is a reading that comes from uh, the Two Testament and Christian Bible uh, and um, allows for a deeper appreciation, I think, uh, of the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament, but also a deeper appreciation of the character of Christ's uh, atoning work and allows us both to see what was uh, accurate in Andrew Louth's claim, but also uh, in desperate need of uh, correction. I could say more, but my uh, physical constitution, I think, needs to stop here. Thank you. Ideas of Exodus 40. For him, it's, he, he refers to the temple, the Naos. That's true. Uh, no, I think, well, Hebrews 9, no, I think that, um, no, because I think the number 7 there, uh, paragraph number 7, is recall, the heavy lifting is what Israel does in the Old Testament, either vis a vis the tabernacle or vis a vis the temple. 
that's what he, he wants to argue provides the mode of rebutting uh, the uh, Arian worship, uh, worries about venerating the flesh of Jesus. Okay. okay. I, I, saw, I saw your talk, it's actually a really nice illustration of how the sort of scholarly approach is simply not available to an animator and help expand what he was doing. Yes, that's true. That's true. I, 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 I perhaps, you know, made Athanasius look too much like Gary Anderson, but um, uh, I, I, will, I will accept that criticism. But I, what I would guess if I would want to push back on where, and I, I, you know, couldn't read all my footnotes. This is very much a, a paper I suppose influenced by uh, the work and methods of uh, uh, Seitz and his teacher, Robert Childs. And my point here is, is that Athanasius. Uh, understands the temple metaphor, uh, its per se voice, as Seitz would put it, as capable of doing extraordinary work in Christological argument. I think uh, a move that's rarely made among moderns for a variety of reasons that I didn't want to explore in my paper, but wanted to show that, it, it, you know, what's happening in, with, with Athanasius. Many thanks for this very interesting perspective. I was wondering whether another student uh, entered, the, entered the picture, I mean the Sukkot, mm -hmm. the Feast of Sukkot, Sinai. Not only its liturgical uh, dimension, its uh, ecological dimension, and the final pilgrimage of uh, Jesus toward Jerusalem toward the temple in the book of Zechariah. So not only the end of creation, Um, yes, thank you for that. I hadn't, uh, you know, I haven't thought about that. I will think about it further. Um, as, as far as eschatology goes, I mean, I suppose that was the point of the two slides I showed earlier in their, you know, Jewish iteration, Exodus 40 um, and Leviticus 9 are not simply the stories of the beginning uh, of uh, sacrificial service, but they also uh, become emblematic of Jewish hopes for the return of sacrificial service. And many have suggested, for example, I'm not a, always a partisan of this direction. I think it probably is an implied level of meaning, but that this mosaic uh, uh, takes the character it does uh, in the Byzantine period when Christians are explicitly making the claim that the destruction of the temple is eternal. And so this slide, this mosaic, is an indication that within the con, you know the conceptual world of the synagogue that that's a falsehood that you know in the at the end of days uh, the the temple will be rebuilt and that has also been suggested as the background perhaps of some of these uh, depictions in illuminated manuscripts not this one per se but ones that take an interest in the temple uh, um, uh, furniture. Um, I wouldn't dispute that that's an element there, but I think another reason why medieval manuscripts and the frontispage will uh, put the uh, implements of the temple furniture there is the deep association of the kind of deification of these elements, these elements as it were, uh, representing the, the presence of God among the people of Israel and that that presence will return uh, when uh, the temple is rebuilt. So I'm not disputing your, 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 your point about Sukkot. I guess the only, I'm just saying that the, the eschatological dimension is very much present in these materials as well.
I didn't want to uh, introduce into the lecture. My interest um, was in the subject of uh, the dokes of the glory uh, of the Lord, Kyrios, uh, and the, and the skenoo, uh, the tabernacling or tenting, because those images, I mean, clearly in John 1.14, are so directly derivative of um, uh, Exodus 40 that um, uh, I wanted to limit myself uh, to that. I, I, part of the, um, and this would be another paper as well, but Jacob Milgram in his commentary on Leviticus uh, believes that this use of uh, doxa as uh, a means of uh, describing uh, the crucified Christ has its origins. Now, I don't agree with Milgram here, but I don't completely disagree. It's, some, it's a crazy idea, but actually, there's brilliance behind the craziness. He thinks it goes back to um, a Jewish tradition already. Uh, you can already find it in Philo, uh, but you will eventually find it in the Sifra and then in Rashi's commentary uh, that Nadav and Avihu, uh, when they die, uh, when the sacrifices are first being offered in uh, the end of Leviticus 9, beginning of Leviticus 10, according to Philo and this you know, minor rabbinic tradition, uh, they, they die not because they've done something wrong, but they die because they offer themselves to God. They're like Isaac, uh, and uh, they're, they're glorified. And this is all grounded in Exodus 29, uh, where um, Moses heard, hears that God is going to be uh, glorified and sanctified by the building. Kiddush Hashem, rabbinic Hebrew, is an idiom, to sanctify the name is an idiom for martyrdom. And uh, in the Midrash, Moses then turns to Aaron and says, I knew when I heard that, that one, either you or I were going to die. Um, uh, now I see it. Your, your firstborn son was going to die. Uh, that is uh, to offer himself. Uh, and Milton suggests that this is what's going on in John. I think that's wrong. Uh, but uh, what's right about it is I think that there's a tertium quid. And I, in other words, I think uh, the deep structure here is Genesis 22. Uh, and especially the invocation of uh, agency for Isaac, uh, that the foundational sacrifice is an act of self-offering. And I think, again, to use child's language, uh, that chapter exerts pressure on uh, this you know, uh, evolving Jewish tradition uh, such that Nadav and Avihu then uh, become uh, the, uh, the pinnacle of the beginning of sacrificial service. And John, I think, say a tertium quid because I think John makes the same move, but I don't think he makes that move because he knows the story of Nadav and Abihu. I think that's crazy. 
but I think uh, they both stem from a similar notion that uh, understands self-sacrifice, like the story of also the, the martyrs in, in Maccabees, or even better, uh, the prayer of Azaria in uh, Daniel chapter 3, the Greek editions, in which uh, Azaria says that, you know, they're may their self-offering be accepted as a sacrifice um, in, in any event. I, I think that's, that's very, very relevant here, uh, but not in the way Jacob Nogum has posed it. Yeah, your two um, partners are very attractive. Um, I was wondering if you could try to make uh, John 1-1 one, one with other parts of John a little more explicitly on your theme of the love and sacrifice of John together. You know, I don't, I don't dispute that. I guess um, I didn't want to be pulled in uh, against my better wishes into uh, an articulation of all that's going on in John. Um, <laughs> though I clearly I, I, I have stepped outside of my you know, normal temporal frame and going to Athanasius and then Andrew Lauf, maybe I shouldn't worry about the Gospel of John. But um, I, I guess I would rather say more rather than less. And uh, the, the way I got at the question, I think, that, uh, or the issue that you've raised in your question is the way in which uh, doxa uh, is deepened later in John's Gospel. So it's introduced in chapter 1 in a way, if we went back to the slide uh, that I had from Raymond Brown's commentary, as though the only work that term is doing is to recall the kavod Adonai from Exodus 40. Uh, but I think once you read John's Gospel all the way through, you realize that you know the glory of the Lord has you know uh, more resonances than just the evocation of Exodus 40, uh, and that's uh, where I think um, you know the larger sacrificial paradigm of Jesus' self-offering, you know, of Himself to the Father, uh, comes to bear at least in my my two arches here. I, I'm an American, and McDonald's, of course, is an American company. That's maybe why I'm attracted to two arches. I don't know. <laughs> the McDonald'sization of, um, of biblical studies. 